Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, the Institute for Social and Economic Research and Policy, and the Society of Fellows in Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates R. Gordon Hoxie, Professor of American History in honor of Dwight D. Eisenhower at Columbia, Stephanie McCurry's book, Women's War, Fighting and Surviving the American Civil War. First, we'll hear Stephanie speaking about her book at the panel, and then we'll hear the comments Camille Robsis, Associate Professor of History in French at Columbia, made at the panel. Well, good evening, everybody. It just makes me so happy to be here tonight with my friends and colleagues including the amazing ones on this panel, uh, to celebrate the publication of my book. And it means a a lot to me to do it here at Columbia, which has become such a welcoming intellectual home for me after my wanderings, as uh, Chris just pointed out. And I have to say how happy I am that Drew is back among the ranks of us lowly historians. (laughs) It's absolutely no fun without you. So uh, I'm definitely going to be more productive now. (laughs) So as some of you know, I am a historian of the 19th century United States, the South, slavery, the Civil War, and emancipation. But in many ways for me, there's only ever one topic, and that's relations of power and how they work. War, violence, legitimacy, politics, these are my preoccupations. And power between men and women, something integral to the rest, but far harder to explain. I've written about these things uh, in many ways over the years, but always while keeping a distance from the historical experience that produced the scholar. And so this book, Women's War, is uh, special to me because it's really the first time I faced this head on and tried to articulate the connection between my personal and scholarly selves, try to to sort of excavate and explain the things that matter to me in the writing of history, why I choose the subjects I do, why I write about them the way I do, why I care so much about gender and power, about not writing women out of the history they so obviously made. And it has a lot to do with why I would write a book like this. So as some of you know, I grew up in Belfast during the Troubles on the Catholic side of the line when the city was under uh, British military occupation. And that kind of a place offers a great education. And believe me, I got a good one, especially about what happens when people don't have the political power to force change when they turn to violence to do it, and about the limits of human agency that we painfully learn at those moments. And I learned other things also about whose struggle it was, because mine was a nationalist community dominated by men, but there was never any doubt about women's involvement, and that was a word of the movement, about women's involvement in the movement. A few of you in this room might be old enough to remember Bernadette Devlin, who was just the most prominent example of this. And all of these things stayed with me, including the knowledge common in many parts of the world that women are passionate parties to their people's struggles. So I can't recognize histories of war that leave women out, and certainly I wouldn't write one. Um, So in this book, in that sense, Women's War is a book about the American Civil War, but it's also, from my point of view, about the meta problem of women in war. And what I see as the trans-historical and highly problematic assumption that women are outside war. It's something I've tackled before through the idea of Antigone, the sense that women might be witnesses to war or innocent, innocent parties who should be protected in it, but not just human beings like men 
who shared the political convictions about the causes of the war or the legitimacy of invasions, who were willing to fight, or who shaped the terms of war simply in their desperation to survive it. Uh, this idea that women are outside war is a belief belied by a long history. The evidence is everywhere you look, but it's scattered among the histories of individual conflicts. You can see it across the sweep of modern history in civil wars, world wars, wars of national liberation. But the pattern gets lost. Every case is cast as an exception to the rule. And so when it came to the American Civil War, this was also true. This fiction was a powerful one. It shaped the war itself and the way we write about it, and I think still write about it. It's kind of the idea, as one soldier put it, that we don't make war on women and children. Women, he said, are entitled to protection even if they are the wives and daughters of rebels. Well, they would change their mind about this, and that's part of what the book is about. In every war that I know of, at least in the modern period, armies are forced to acknowledge women's role as enemies who matter during the conflict, although when it's over, the whole society moves forcefully to deny and bury that history. So the book is also about that, and it's why it mattered to me to write it, to tackle fictions about women in war, to challenge the writing out of women, including by historians, and to insist on the value of women's perspective on wars and their aftermaths. So let me tell you a little bit quickly about the parts of the book. It has three parts, and each takes up a central question of, the, of Civil War history that I think turns crucially on the, on the history of women and gender. First, the nature of the military conflict and the new destructive so-called American way of waging war. Second, black women fugitives' role in emancipation and the limits of the military narrative about it. And third, the challenges of reconstructing a post-war order in its aftermath about what was involved in destroying slavery and reconstructing lives, including ideas of love and belonging in the aftermath of the war. So if the book starts with things I've already uh, thought about, it ends by leading into the work that I'm doing now. So the first chapter on enemy women and the laws of war is really a deep dive into, the international, into, into international law and the idea of gen gender and innocence in the laws of war. The assumption of women's innocence is the fundamental basis of civilian immunity in the laws of war and has been since the 16th century, although this is something that scholars just really don't focus on. It took a serious hit, this idea of uh, gender and innocence. It took a serious hit in the new code of law written in the, American, in the middle of the American Civil War to govern the conduct of Union armies in the field. That code was named after Francis Lieber, the man, a Columbia law professor, as it turns out, who had been commissioned to write it. Lieber's code was hugely influential. If you're not an American Civil War historian, it might be the only thing you know about the American Civil War. It became the basis of the Hague and Geneva Conventions. It's widely recognized as a radical revision of the laws of war because of the way it eviscerated the distinction between combatants and civilians and it's this distinction on which the entire law of war is based. So with Lieber, the protections accorded civilians in war were eroded, and the balance between immunity and accountability shifted radically. It's why one historian called it the Arch Occupier's Code. What I discovered in the archives when I saw a first draft of this code is that the most important sections on the distinction were added after the first draft 
at the insistence of General-in-Chief Henry Halleck, and they incorporated virtually verbatim a set of military field orders that Halleck had issued in 1863, specifically in response to the military threat posed by enemy women in Tennessee. These ideas, uh, sorry, these orders that Halleck issued targeted pro-Confederate women, rebel women, engaged in the kind of work women do in partisan forces across the modern period. By the time Halleck issued the crackdown on women, large numbers of them had already been arrested and imprisoned, and his orders authorized that on the grounds that the, their actions constituted military treason. That these orders were incorporated into Lieber's code on his direct command. Now, it's precisely these parts of the code scholars still point to as the most important, but none appear to have any idea of the women's history that produced them. What had collapsed in the American Civil War was the assumption of women's innocence on which the distinction and the identity of the civilian was premised. It had its roots in the struggle of the Union Army with enemy women, and in that sense, it's a Civil War women's history obscured but still manifest and enduring in the international laws of war. In the epilogue to the book, I try to draw out the contemporary significance of the idea of women's innocence by looking at a recent UN resolution on women, peace, and security, just one of the constant attempts to restore the idea of women's innocence that's necessary to underpinning the civilian immunity and protections in war. From there, the book turns to another defining feature of the war, the process of slave emancipation. Against the dominant narrative that slaves earned emancipation through military service, an obviously male narrative, it focuses on the very different war African-American women were fighting to destroy slavery and find a way to liberate themselves and their families while somehow also surviving the military conflict. And that story fits no state narrative, Union or Confederate, and has been entirely neglected in both literatures. I try to show the challenges black women fugitives posed both to the Union military emancipation policy, which was aimed really at enslaved men, but also to historical narratives of emancipation that sort of that seem to sort of follow that logic. Um, <clears throat> uh, in the Civil War that African Americans fought, they faced a far more forbidding landscape than the men in their families and communities, in no small part because there was no military upside to their presence. They were seen by the Union Army as a burden and an encumbrance. The thousands, probably hundreds of thousands, of women and children who flooded into Union lines created a humanitarian crisis of staggering proportions and a problem of governance that confounded Union policy. It confounded it because the government tried to manage women through policies based on the fiction that each of them was some soldier's wife. And you see that for policymakers, emancipation was literally inconceivable without the prior and anchoring order of marriage and the patriarchal family. They wanted to shift the burden of governing these women and supporting them to men, uh, particular men, before they emancipated them. And this is, in fact, a pattern that you can see across the hemisphere, starting with Saint-Domingue, even before, as I learned from Chris. It makes it clear, I think, how few allies black women had, including among Union forces, and how much they were up against in every aspect of the war. The human cost was staggeringly high. It's hard to grasp it, but I try to show how exposed and vulnerable each of them was 
to deadly violence at the hands of white Southerners and both armies. It's shocking, I think, to realize even now that in all the accounting for the Civil War debt, which Drew did a lot of, we have no idea how many enslaved people were murdered or died in the conflict. The fiction that every black woman fighting the Civil War was a soldier's wife, it offered them no protection in the time and place, but it did set the conditions of the citizenship they could claim and establish them as dependent parties or minors in the drama of emancipation. And this, I think, is still how the history is written. Another group of women written out of the history they made. So finally, the last part of the book leads directly into the project I'm doing now on the post-Civil War United States, one I think of very self-consciously as a project about a post-war society or moment, and not, not narrowly a history of reconstruction. It's, a, it's about one white woman's effort at reconstructing a life amid the ruins of the Old South. This woman, Gertrude Thomas, uh, from Augusta, Georgia, she kept a 41-year record of her life that captured this incredible historical passage. And that it's a woman's perspective on history is what makes it valuable. Not less valuable, more valuable. It necessarily takes, because it necessarily takes in the impact of social collapse and post-war reconstruction in personal as well as political realms. And I think it allows us to see how huge structural changes in land, labor, capital, and racial ideology, the things that histories are normally written about, how those were inextricably entangled with highly intimate matters of marriage and family, sexuality, and love. With slavery and its possessive claim destroyed, even subjectivity itself and ideas about love and belonging had to be remade. Crazy as it sounds, I think we still haven't taken the proper measure of what emancipation and thus the process of reconstructing involved. We need to grasp this from my point of view, not at the global level, which is what we're told these days, but actually the opposite, at the human scale. It's the human experience of these meta-events that interests me now. People like Gertrude Thomas didn't just accept the loss of their racial privilege or surrender their possessive claim on the people they had owned. Um, <coughs> sorry, I lost my place. As everything was wrenched away, her response mixed grief, loss, and rage in dangerous measure. At the very moment she was living through defeat and emancipation, her father died. And when his will was read, she learned that he had other children, enslaved children, whose mother he owned. It's impossible to separate Gertrude Thomas's thinking about race and white supremacy in this volatile historical moment from her feelings of sexual betrayal and humiliation. One thing her story shows is that the damage from slavery set a deep explosive charge beneath every negotiation over the terms of freedom in the post-war South. Slavery had been a foundational institution of Southern life since the 17th century, and the end of it required the reconstruction of every element of life. If we think of the cost of emancipation as a kind of indemnity imposed on the former Confederacy as the price of defeat, it starts to put the US experience in broad context and might allow us to think about the perseverant problems faced by post-war societies and the challenges of making peace and reconstructing lives that arise everywhere in the aftermath of war in the post-war American South, 
Reconstruction involved a revolution in every household and every family. Now we'll hear the comments Columbia professor Camille Hobsis made at the panel. Hi. Um, so as Chris said, I, I work on French intellectual history, so I'm coming to this very much as an outsider, uh, but an outsider filled with admiration. And I want to first begin by thanking Stephanie for inviting me to participate in this panel and for writing such a stimulating book. I should put my clock. Okay. Um, I want to begin with the one thing, the, the single thing really that I don't like about the book, and that is, that is its title. Um, I don't like the title because I think it fails to capture the full scope of the project. Um, from the title alone, and if you don't know Stephanie, one could think that this is a story about the progressive visibility of women in the American public sphere, a new visibility triggered by the catalyst of the Civil War. And in this sense, it would seem like a familiar story, um, at least a familiar story from my perspective of European history. And this is the kind of thing when you're teaching, a, the, when I teach the survey of European history, for example, and you get to World War I, you tend to emphasize the sudden feminization of the workforce, the fact that women started delivering mail, driving trucks and working in factories, and that eventually they cut their hair, start smoking and wearing pants, and, and that all this caused great anxiety to the men who come home from the trenches, and only to realize that the civilization no longer had sexes. Uh, and this is the title from Mary Louise Roberts' excellent book on, on gender in post-World War I France. But Stephanie's project here is much more broader, I think, and much more ambitious. Her point is not simply to reveal the growing presence of women in, the public in public life due to the war, nor is it to restore some kind of agency to women um, that historians have erased during all these years. Rather, as I understand it, Stephanie's goal is to show with admirable clarity and incredible force how gender and race undergird the very fabric of American political culture. So I think the term gender here is more adequate than women if we understand gender not simply as a descriptive category to talk about the relationship between the sexes, nor as a synonym for women, uh, but rather as a lens or a tool to understand these relationships of power. As Stephanie puts it, citing uh, Ranaji Guha, women mess up the plots. So from a historical perspective, the gender question becomes what symbolic representations of women are invoked, how, and in what context. And this is exactly what Stephanie explores in this book. She shows with great persuasion how gender became a field within which, or by means of which, a new American political culture was articulated in the aftermath of the Civil War. Far from being a redemptive history of women, this is, a, this is political history at its very core. So what does gender tell us about American politics in the second half of the 19th century? Um, in the few minutes that I have left, I just want to sort of take up two of the book's main lines of inquiry to highlight um, perhaps more stringently, the ways in which gender messed up this, the political in this particular context. So the, the first question that I wanted to, to sort of pause on was that, that runs through the book is the concerns the centrality of marriage in the definition or re redefinition of the nation during and after the Civil War. Um, and so in the second chapter of her book, Stephanie shows how under military necessity, as she was just telling us, the army was forced to reconsider the legal status of women and children after it had encouraged black soldiers to join the Union Army. Every enslaved woman had to be a soldier's wife, or as Stephanie puts it, starting in 1861, it became clear that as far as the government was concerned, enslaved men were to take the martial path to freedom and enslaved women the marital path. 
Marriage, in other words, became the organizing principle of state-sponsored emancipations. So what I find particularly interesting is what happened after this moment of military exception, once things go back to normal, if you can call Reconstruction normal, um, especially in the context of the constitutional amendments that were passed during those years, the so-called second founding of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And it seemed to me that Stephanie was tracing the dots between the fact that the 14th Amendment that guaranteed equal protection under of all laws um, and that would not have any application to women until 1971, but also the 15th Amendment, which would not give women the right to vote until 1920 in another amendment, um, essentially were already had the seeds of these, of these problems from this moment, right? It was already apparent um, in the redefinition of marriage at this moment um, that heterosexual marriage, whether it was black or white, was deemed foundational to the renewal of the nation. And if I'm right to read this um, along these lines, it seems like it raises all kinds of fascinating questions about the role of marriage as a privileged vehicle to think about social reproduction. So not just biological reproduction, but literally the reproduction of the nation and of citizenship. Um, and if you destabilize sort of racial definitions of citizenship as, as the war did, then you need to somehow reassert its gender dimensions to rely on marriage and family as sort of stabilizers. So I wanted to know a bit more about what marriage exactly entailed at this point. Uh, what, what did these government officials and army generals imagine marriage to be, aside from just a simple moral and religious issue? Was this an attempt to centralize what seemed to me a very decentralized institution in the American context? Certainly a more decentralized, um, certainly decentralized from the perspective of a French historian. <laughs> or else to reassert the role of the state, like a kind of state-building move, if you'd like, um, in the organization of this new nation, um, and as the nation was trying to rethink its social contract in this moment of reconstruction. So I'm really stretching here, but I, but I, I you know, I had the feeling that in some ways you could relate this to a kind, or I was wondering if this redefinition of marriage was also related to a certain expansion of the federal government in an attempt to kind of redefine the nation along those lines. This leads me directly to the second theme of the book that I wanted to bring up, um, which I would summarize as the psychic life of reconstruction. These are my terms, not Stephanie's. <laughs> but I think it's exactly what she's talking about in the third chapter, the case of Gertrude Thomas that she was just telling us about. As Stephanie shows from the close reading of her diary, slavery, slavery penetrated and organized every element of Thomas's life. As a result, emancipation also demanded the organization and the reorganization of every element in her life, including her psychic life. As Stephanie puts it, slavery was, quote, a social system, a system of labor and exploitation, and a foundation of subjectivity itself. So this, I thought, was extremely interesting also, and it begs the question of how we should rethink subjectivity during this period of Reconstruction, and as she was just saying right now, um, in moments of, in, in kind of these post-war moments more generally. One of the central questions that, the, that this chapter raised for me had to do with the historical specificity of, the post, of, of a post-war moment. Um, when is a war really over? How and when does, does a war end? Uh, and clearly the answer is not when you sign an armistice or a peace treaty. Uh, similarly, the chapter asks, when does slavery really end? And again, Thomas's life suggests that slavery did not end with a legal emancipation or 
Reconstruction, Stephanie tells us, begins at, at the home, and Gertrude Thomas tried to untangle her complicated fantasies concerning slavery, but also concerning marriage and sexuality in this new configuration. So just two things here. Uh, first, I read this chapter as an argument for the historical relevance of the notion of fantasy. Um, and fantasy here, not as something that would be kind of opposed to reality, but as something that really constitutes reality. Um, certainly the reality of Gertrude Thomas, but also uh, you know, certain re social and, and political realities of the time. And in fact, if we relate this to the second chapter, fantasy is also what prompts the writing and practice of law, especially the fantasy around what marriage could do. Second, I was fascinated to observe the ways in which Thomas experienced reconstruction as sexual hum humiliation. This is really kind of a running thread throughout her diary. Um, through Thomas, Stephanie brings to light the deeply rooted and interconnected racial and sexual fantasies that haunted reconstruction and the aftermath of the war, and I would say that very much still haunt our present. So again, this raises interesting questions for our present. This is where I thought it was almost like a history of the present. Um, you know, because to, to it help it can help us think questions that I I was interested in my last book where I tried to think through really a really different context and the kind of context of post fascism and post World War Two in, in France. Um, how there was a, I was looking at how intellectuals were trying to imagine how people get rid of fascism that persists in people's mind. Like how do you defascize your mind, right? Um, but this is similar in some ways. Like how do you decolonize subjectivity? How do you disalienate a whole nation? Um, and I was thinking about this in relation to the conversation that, the political conversation around reparations today. And, and again, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it seems to me that the sexual, that the sexual angle ra rarely comes up. Um, and the kind of persistence of these racial and sexual fantasies at the national level is not something that's usually sort of um, brought up in, in, in a conversation around how we should deal with reparations. So if we do foreground this, this dimension, how can we rethink reparations? Uh, because it seems to me that if we don't acknowledge the power and the pr profound grip that these sexual fantasies have had and still have, it's very hard to understand our present, um, certainly hard to understand the election of someone like Donald Trump as a kind of acting out of these particular um, sort of long-lasting and poignant racial and sexual fantasies at the heart um, of white supremacy. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Stephanie McCurry's book, Women's War fighting and surviving the American Civil War. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Jennifer Wenzel's book, The Disposition of Nature, Environmental Crisis and World Literature. From Columbia University Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Ann Levitsky.